John 5, starting at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learnt that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who, he, who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work on this to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's begin with a prayer. Loving Father, we need your help. We want to hear you and to really hear you so that your words don't go in one ear and out the other but just make a difference to us. So please help me to speak your words faithfully so that what we're hearing is the words of Jesus and help us by your Holy Spirit to be changed by what you say. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you've ever thought what it would be like to have actually met Jesus. And we read about him and he's a kind of figure in history, but just imagine you were actually there and you met him. What do you think it would be like? I can tell you, you would never have forgotten it. What's very striking as you read the New Testament accounts about Jesus is no one's ever bored by Jesus. When Jesus is speaking, no one falls asleep. No one forgets it. And yet, how easily, when we hear Jesus' words. That's what we're going to do, by the way. Um, ignore me. My task is to try and help us understand what Jesus is saying. And yet, how easy it is for us to fall asleep when we're hearing the words of Jesus. How easy it is to listen for a few minutes on a Sunday and then go back into normal life, and we've forgotten it completely. And there's something wrong there. 
So I'm going to, at the end, encourage you to think, what is the difference that this is going to make to me? Our series is The Difference Jesus Makes. And even though we're not physically in the presence of Jesus, we're listening to his words. So at the end, we're going to ask, what difference does this make for me? Because we're going to see in this section a call from Jesus in three areas of life. And it may be that all three are very important for you. It may be that one is the special thing that you especially need to hear. There's a call to hope in the face of suffering. Maybe you're here today and you're worried about your own suffering. Life is hard at the moment. Or you're very worried about suffering in the world. And maybe the challenge and the call for you is hope in the face of suffering. The next call is repentance from sin. And maybe that's the challenge we need to hear, that we've been continuing to live in ways that are not right. And we need to repent. That means to turn around and turn away from those wrong things. Maybe that's the challenge that you especially need to hear. And then the third call is for faith in God's Son. That's Jesus. So we begin with hope in the face of suffering. And if you were listening to the reading, here is Jesus in a very sad scene indeed. It's a place called the Pool of Bethesda. And there was a superstition that if you went to this pool and you were sick and unwell, at one particular moment, just every now and then, that the, the pool would bubble up. No one quite knows why it was happening, but it would bubble up. And the idea was that if you could get in first, then you could be healed. And because of that superstition, it's not surprising that we read verse 3 that a great number of disabled people used to lie by the pool. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Just imagine the scene that the archaeologists have excavated. It would have been a very large pool. And there were large areas around it. And yet there were many, many who were disabled. Desperate people. And of course, in those days, there was no social security. So if you were disabled, you probably couldn't get a job. And if you couldn't get a job, how were you going to live to eat? You'd have to beg. So here are desperate people. And we can see, I think, in this scene, just a little picture of the suffering of the world today. So many people in our world, physically sick, in psychological distress, facing trauma, maybe from some abuse in the past, or the horrors of war. You just turn on the news, and there you see it. We used to see Ukraine day by day. There's just a danger we're forgetting about Ukraine, because the latest horror has come to the forefront, the horrors in Israel and Gaza. And it, it, it feels almost unbearable. I know one friend of mine who just said she couldn't watch the news. It was so distressing, she'd never watch the news. And maybe one way of coping with all the misery and sadness in the world is just to try and pretend it isn't there. But where's God in all this? And that's a question, of course, many people ask. And many people say, because of all the suffering in the world, you can't really believe in God. Steve Jobs who founded Apple, I'm grateful to Steve Jobs because I love Apple products, 
Steve Jobs was an atheist, and uh, he said in later life that um, the moment he turned his back on God was in the late 1960s when there was a terrible famine in a place called Biafra, which is now part of Nigeria. And on the cover of a magazine, Life magazine, there was a photograph of two emaciated children absolutely starving. And Steve Jobs used to go to Sunday school. Many, many people went to Sunday school in those days in the U.S., and he went along to Sunday school. He took that uh, magazine photograph of the two starving children, and he said to the Sunday school teacher, does God know everything? And the Sunday school teacher said, yes, God knows everything. Before I do it, he said, does God know which hand I'm going to raise? And the Sunday school teacher said, yes, God knows whether you're going to raise the right or the left hand. And then he showed the picture of the two starving children. Does God know what's going to happen, uh, what's, what's happening to those children? And could he do something about it? And the Sunday school teacher said, yes, it's, it's very hard, I know, for you to understand. But God knows everything and God is in complete control. And at that point, he threw the magazine in the bin and he left church and he never came back. He thought if God is in control and he allows that to happen then he's not a God he was going to worship. And there are some people who think, well, I can't believe in a God in which the kind of scene that's being described here can happen. All those people, no suggestion that they're to blame in any way for the horrors that they're facing, their disabilities. How can God allow that? Where is God in all this mess? Of course, by the way, if you get rid of God and say, I don't believe in God, you haven't dealt with the problem of suffering it's just there, and there's absolutely no hope in the face of suffering. There's no meaning in the face of suffering. But maybe you're asking the question, where is God in this world of suffering? And John's Gospel says, he's right here. The Word became flesh. We thought about that two weeks ago. The Word became flesh. The eternal Word of God, God's eternal Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't stay away in the comfort of heaven. He came and entered the world. And he was born not in a palace, but in a stable. He knew the mess of life. And he didn't stay away from nasty things. Here we find him at this pool, right in the midst of suffering. And he's concerned in the midst of suffering, not just for the, for, for the enormity of it, but for every individual who faces it, it's striking that there's one particular invalid who's been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know the extent of his disability, but it seems because he, he's so frustrated that he can't get to the water when it starts bubbling up, it seems he's paralyzed. He certainly finds it very hard to move. It must have been a terrible condition to be in for 38 years. And maybe you face some great hardship for a long time and it might be something that's obvious to everyone it could be something that no one else is really aware of and they can't see it's some sadness or distress inside your heart and you wonder does anyone notice does anyone care and I love these words verse 6 Jesus saw him lying there so here's this crowd with lots and lots of suffering, but Jesus sees the one. He notices him, just as Jesus sees you. 
He cares. We read verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? It's a strange question to ask, isn't it? Do you want to get well? Of course he wants to get well. And he replies, sir, I've got no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He's still thinking his only hope is this superstitious belief that if the water starts bubbling up, if only he could be the first to get there, then maybe there's a chance. But it's helpless because there's no one to help him down there and he'll never be the first. He's got no hope at all. And then wonderfully Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers to the big questions of life. It doesn't explain why there's so much suffering in the world in particular ways. It says it's all because of human sin, but it doesn't say why does that person suffer and that person not suffer. There are lots of answers and questions that we don't have answers to in the Bible. But it does present us with a God who loves us very much. And that helps me to trust. Because I believe God has shown himself in Jesus, I trust in him. That helps me cope with the unanswered questions. Suppose you've known someone for a long, long time and you know that they're trustworthy. And then one day you greet, greet them and meet for lunch. Maybe it's tomorrow and you agree to meet to, for lunch at one o'clock and they're not there. And there's no message and you've no idea why then they're not there. And perhaps a friend says to you, oh, well, they clearly don't like you. They're probably laughing right now. They've deliberately done this just to make life miserable for you. They don't, they're not interested in you. They don't care about you at all. And you would say, look, I've known this friend for many years. I know them to be kind and caring and a good friend. I don't know why they haven't turned up, but I know that unanswered question must fit within what I know of this person. And what we see in Jesus is God's amazing love and his power to deal with mess and suffering in the world. And I trust in him, even though I don't have all the answers. Here is God's love in the face of suffering, God's power in the face of suffering. So there's the first call, hope. And maybe you've begun to lose hope because of suffering in your life or suffering in some loved one's life or suffering out there in the world. And this beautiful story is saying there is a God and he sees. And he's not a distant God, but he's come right down. Here he is in the midst of this crowd of suffering people. Hope in the face of suffering. Is that what you need to cling on to? Next call is for repentance from sin. And some very odd words, I wonder if you heard them when they were said. Later, verse 14, Jesus found this man at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Something worse than being an invalid for 38 years. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. We'll come back to that in a moment. Here we find the man He's just been healed, and for the first time for 38 years, he's moving off. He's able to walk, 
and how excited he must have been. And you'd have thought everyone would be rejoicing with him. But not the religious leaders. Oh no, they come to him and say, verse 10, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And just shows that religion, when it goes wrong, can suck the life out of you. It can quench the joy in you. And all they're concerned about is their laws. Now, the Bible does say, take a Sabbath day. But the religious leaders over many centuries kept adding laws on top of it. Lots and lots of little detailed laws. They kept expanding what work went. It was meant to be a wonderful liberating provision. So that at least one day of a week, you could leave your normal work behind. Rest and focus on God. That's a wonderful liberation. But they turned the law that was meant to be liberating into a terrible slavery by constantly adding rules onto it, extending what work actually meant. So, for instance, if you had a wooden leg, you couldn't use the wooden leg on the Sabbath because that would be carrying a burden, and that would mean working. So you'd have to hop around on the Sabbath. It's a nonsense. And here are these people seeing this man who's just been healed, carrying the mat that he used to lie on. And they start telling him off. And he says to them, well, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat at walk. Interesting that he didn't know who he was. See, these religious leaders don't come out very well in the story, but the man doesn't come out very well either, does he? He's just been healed, and he hasn't even found out who Jesus' name is. It seems that all he's focused on is his excitement about the fact that he can walk again. He doesn't seem to ask the question, who did that? And where did that astonishing power come from? He doesn't seem very interested in Jesus. He's just excited about being able to walk again. But beautifully, even though he's not very interested in Jesus... Jesus is very interested in him. And so he goes and finds him. Found him at the temple. So you get the impression that Jesus is consciously looking for him because it's not enough for Jesus just to make him walk properly. Of course, Jesus wants us to be physically well, but there's something much, much more important. And so eventually he finds him and he says to him, verse 14, see you are well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. It's a very clear message about what the biggest problem of our lives is. You'd have thought that the biggest problem of that man's life is his inability to walk. But Jesus had dealt with that problem and still wanted to deal with him because there was something more important. It was his sin. The fact that he was living in God's world, his way, not God's way. And the worst that could happen to him than 38 years of being unable to walk was an eternity not being a friend of God. And God loved him so much that he wasn't prepared just to deal with his legs. He wanted to deal with his heart that was turned away from God and the fact that he was not a friend of God. And that explains one of the mysteries. So I wonder if you thought, well, it's great that Jesus healed that man, but why didn't Jesus heal everyone at the pool? In fact, if Jesus had the ability to heal, why didn't he spend all his life healing? He could have done so. 
And the reason he doesn't, because that was not his priority. And we read the Gospels and we find he's determined to go to Jerusalem and to his death. Because healing people could deal with their bodies, but he wanted to deal with their hearts and the fact that they were cut off from God. And that's why he had to go to Jerusalem, why he had to die, why he had to take the penalty for the wrong things that they'd done in their lives so that they could be forgiven. So I wonder, what do you think is the biggest problem in your life? And for some, maybe it's a physical problem. You can't move around as much as you'd like, or you're sick. It might be some circumstance. You'd love a different home. You'd like to get a job. You'd like a different job. You'd like to find a partner, whatever it might be. Those things are not insignificant. And beautifully, Jesus cares. Jesus dealt with that man's problem. But the biggest problem is not to do with our bodies, not to do with our homes and our relationships. The biggest problem is to do with our hearts and to do with our sin. And it may just be that there's some here who've never said to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Never recognized that without being friends with Jesus, they face an eternity away from Jesus. And never recognized that Jesus had to die for them so that they could be forgiven. And if that's you, please come to him. We'd love to help you to know how to do it. And for others of us, maybe we've received the forgiveness of Jesus, rather like that man received healing from Jesus, but then we've carried on living as if nothing's changed, and we keep on sinning, doing things we know that are wrong without any attempt to change. And Jesus says to us, as he said to that man, stop sinning. Repent. Maybe that's the challenge that we need. Maybe in general terms, to start with Jesus and say, sorry, I want to start living for you. Or maybe something very specific that we know is wrong, but we're keeping on doing it. And to say, Lord, please help me to change. You died for that sin. I don't want to keep doing it anymore. Is that the challenge for you? And then finally, as we close, there's a call to faith in God's Son. We notice how these religious leaders responded, verse 16, because Jesus was doing these things, healing people, and that meant in their mind, working on the Sabbath. They began to persecute him. So even though he was doing wonderfully good things, healing sick people, because it was on the Sabbath, they decided this man must die. And so Jesus, in his defense, says to them, verse 17, my father is always at work to this very day. And I, too, am working. And what's he saying there? The religious leaders knew that human beings should never work on the Sabbath, but they recognized that God, of course, had to work on the Sabbath because if God took a day off, the whole world would, would completely be destroyed. I love the story of the little girl who was saying her prayers one night, and she said, Dear God, um, I, I pray for mummy and daddy and grandma and, and granddad and for the goldfish and for the cat and, and do look after yourself, God, because if anything happened to you, we're in a, we'd really be in trouble. And Jesus is saying, we need God. He can't have a day off. But the implication of what he's saying is, look, 
You're getting at me for working, but God never takes a day off, and I never take a day off, and he's making himself one with God. And they're so horrified by that that they decide this man must die. That's Jesus' claim. We read later in the same section at the end, at the bottom of the page, verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's quite a claim, isn't it? My dad was, uh, was a lawyer, and uh, during the holidays when I was studying, I sometimes went to work, with, work for him, and I'd, I'd do odd jobs for him. So I went down to the police cells to talk to the criminals. I went to other solicitors' firms to give the messages for my dad. Now, just imagine I went down to the police cells, and the, the, uh, the criminals who my dad was representing were very rude to me, spat at me. And I say, you don't understand. I've, I've come from your solicitor, and they spit at me. And then I take a message to another firm of solicitors, and they don't even let me in the building. They, they slam the door in my face. What they're doing to me, they're effectively doing to my dad. And Jesus came to earth as the divine son of God. And some people say, oh, yeah, I get God, but I, I, I don't really see where Jesus fits in. I, I've got no time for Jesus. don't understand him. And, and perhaps think, oh, well, that doesn't matter as long as we believe in God. But Jesus is saying... I and the Father are one. I am the divine Son of God. If you don't honor me, you don't honor him. Verse 24, very truly I tell, tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Is that the challenge for you to trust in him. So remember where we began? No one just forgot what Jesus said to them. No one was unchanged. So what's the challenge for you? We're going to spend a, a moment just in quietness as we think. Is for you the big message you need to take away with hope in the face of suffering? There really is hope because God loves the world and he loves you. Hope in the face of suffering. Is it repentance from sin? Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And sin really does matter. And I've got to ask God to help me change. Or is it faith in God's Son to recognize that he is the divine Son of God, to believe in him, and if I believe in him, to be confident that I don't need to face the judgment I deserve, but I can cross over from death to life. Just a moment of quietness, and then I'll say a prayer. Loving Father, help us not to be unchanged by your message to us today. Give us hope in the face of suffering, a determination to repent, to turn from our sin and help us to have faith in your Son. For Jesus' sake, amen.